0: Our final week of our series on Ecclesiastes called The Meaningful Life is focused on the very end of the book, chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 to 7 and then 13 and 14 as well. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. Excuse me. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home And mourners go about the streets. Remember him. Before the silver cord is severed, and the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, and the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from. And the spirit returns to God, who gave it. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is God's word. So like I said, we are in our final week of the meaningful life. Uh, This is our series on Ecclesiastes, where we're not going through every single last verse in the book. We're taking the first two chapters, explaining them, and then today we're going to get the end of the book. And my hope is that by covering the beginning and the end, you will be prepared to read the book on your own. I I would argue that you are more prepared to understand Ecclesiastes today than you will be ever again in your life, probably. Um, So I would encourage you, if you have not done it, to read through the book, uh, maybe today or this week, so that you can get a picture of the wisdom that God has for you in this book. Um, So today what I I want to do is I want to wrap up the series by focusing our hearts now on what is meaningful in life. Because up to this point, we have focused on the meaninglessness of life without God. But today we want to shift that focus and say, since we do not live in a world without God, since God is real, since Christ has come, we have a meaningful life and to see how we can enjoy that meaningful life. But before we get there, I want to review and make sure we set up this final point really well. If you were here back in week one, we talked about how one of the big themes of this series of the book of Ecclesiastes is life under the sun. Life in a world without windows, life in a world without God or the transcendent or anything beyond what you can see in this world. If all that, is, that is all that you have, then you have a meaningless life. If all you have is the life that you see in front of you, your life is meaningless. We found out that in a number of different ways. We found out that work is meaningless because the accomplishments that you build up, they will not stick with you and no one will remember you after a while. We found out that pleasure is meaningless. Feeling good or at least not feeling bad only lasts for a moment, but you still die and you often don't accomplish much in the process. And we found out that wisdom is meaningless. Knowing all the right answers, being the person who everyone goes to only lasts for a little while and when you die, people forget what you had to say anyways. Everything is meaningless under the sun. But of course we found out that that also is not the case. That there is a world above the sun. Now for us who are studying this book of Ecclesiastes, I think what we can immediately think is that this is a book for atheists. Right, this is God's plea to the atheistic mind that a life without a God is meaningless, and it certainly is that. I mean, this is the book you would go to if you want to talk to somebody who does not believe there is any God at all. But I think if we leave it there, we shortchange the beauty and depth of this book. See, I think this book speaks just as much to an atheist as it does to a cultural Christian. A cultural Christian. See, what a, a cultural Christian is, if you, don't, if you don't know the term, is somebody who uh, identifies with Christianity as their chosen religion, but does not practice what the religion teaches, or maybe only practices in part rather than in full. This is something that is really only common in places where Christianity is accepted and in the modern world. See, where Christianity is accepted, where it is socially or politically advantageous to be a Christian, people will identify with Christianity even if they are not particularly practicing. And maybe you know somebody like that. Somebody who would say, I'm a Christian, but are they in worship? Are they in their Bible? Are they living a life that befits a Christian? Maybe not. I said also that this is a product of the modern world. Uh, Really only in the modern world have we got this idea that you can identify with something as your worldview and then not live it out. that those two things can be separate. We talked about this at length in our Saturday Bible study yesterday, which is why you should come to Saturday Bible study, but um, for most of world history, people have thought that what you believed and what you lived were exactly the same thing. There's no split between them. If you lived something, that's what you believed. But we as modern people have this idea that you can believe something, you can identify with something, and not live like it's true. That's just untrue. It's not possible to actually live that way. And so cultural Christianity is possible in a culture like ours. The reason I say Ecclesiastes speaks to the cultural Christian is because it says to the cultural Christian, if your story includes God but it is not the true story of God, then your life is just as meaningless as if you think there is no God. Do you follow that? If your story of God is not the true story of God, then your life is just as meaningless as if you had no God. A way to think of this is like fan fiction. Do you know this term, fan fiction? Um, fan fiction is when uh, fans of a story narrative, a, a series of maybe books or movies, think like Star Wars or Harry Potter, they will take the characters from the story and they will write new stories with those characters using their own imagination. And those things can be kind of interesting, but what you and I both know is those stories are not the story. And while oftentimes the characters that they pull from those original stories are similar in many ways to the characters created by the original author or script writer, They are different, and so they look and they sound and they seem like the characters you know, but they aren't the same. And I fear often cultural Christianity does this. They have a story about God, but it is not the true story about God. It is the story of a God who does good things for good people, or the story of a God who isn't so concerned that you follow his law, or it's the story of a God who will forgive me no matter really what I do or it could be any number of any other story about God that you might have. But if it is not the true story of God, then it's like believing that Star Wars came from fan fiction. It's not the true story. And therefore, trying to go to a Star Wars convention, thinking that what you read on fan fiction online is the same as what everyone saw in the movie theater, is going to be just as ridiculous. It's cultural Christianity that is just as much in the target line of this book as The atheist. Maybe a different way to think about it is by thinking about hammers. What's a hammer for? Well, this hammer particularly is for driving in a nail, right? But if you are a person who works in construction, you know that that's not the only type of hammer that exists. There are many other types of hammers that can do many different types of jobs. And the only way you can know what each of these hammers is for is if you ask the creator, the crafter of that hammer, what did you build this for? why did you craft this hammer this way? What were you intending to do? You and I were like hammers. I mean, every one of these hammers on the, on the screen probably could drive in a nail, but not every one of them is made for that. In the same way, we could look at our lives and say, well, I generally have a sense of sort of what I'm supposed to do, but until I know the story of the one who crafted me and why he crafted me, I cannot know what my purpose actually is. Now we saw that, like I said, in three different ways. We saw that many people try to find their meaning in wisdom, others in pleasure, some in work, but all of these are meaningless under the sun. They are a searching for my purpose as a crafted hammer, if you will, without asking the person who crafted me, what did you make me for? Now, I do want to get to the meaningfulness of life under God, but I want to first go after two last things that are meaningless beyond these three that we've studied in the series. And those two are justice and love. Because they are, in many ways, some of the most foundational things that we feel in our life. And yet, without God, these are meaningless things. So let's take each of them. First, justice. Uh, Justice is meaningless. Solomon tells us to look at the animals to see this. In chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, he writes, Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All of the same breath. Humans have no advantage over the animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. And who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. You understand his point? He says, look at the animals and see that they live and they die, and that's just the way it goes. Some of animals are born, and they are born into a place where they can thrive. Some are born into a place where they starve. Some are born and grow up, and some are born and are eaten. Some are born and thrive with a healthy life. Some are born and are eaten from the inside by parasites. Some are born into an environment that befits their creation. Others are born into a place where they cannot survive. And no one has a problem with that. That's just the way things go. I mean, you don't see people picketing on the street corner saying, let's stop the injustice of the lion eating the antelope on the African savanna. Because we don't think that's injustice. We just think that's the way life is. But we don't think that way about humans, do we? If we see one human being hurt by another, or if we see a group of people of one ideology or race or power dynamic oppressing another, if we see a nation attacking another nation or a people claiming land that does not belong to them, if we see people who are unloved or people who are impoverished, we have a problem with that. We will picket on the street corner for that kind of stuff. Why? I mean, Solomon says, there's really no reason under the sun There's really no reason if there's no God. Human beings are just a more highly evolved version of an animal. To dust they go just like the other animals do. By the way, there's an atheist who thinks the exact same thing. Uh, Richard Dawkins, maybe you know this name. He says, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. He gets it. In a world under the sun, in a world without God, without the transcendent, what you see in life, the injustices that you perceive, they are meaningless. They are not true injustices. They are just the pitiless indifference of the world that you live in. And very frankly, if you have an idea of justice, it's probably uh, counteractive toward the progress of our society. I mean, why would you protect the weak? The weak need to die off so the strong can survive, so our society can progress forward. So what if a white man kills a black man? Maybe he was weaker. So what if a man oppresses a woman? She probably was weaker. So what if that nation attacks that nation and takes their land? They probably were weaker. And that's how the society or the world progresses, right? You and I both know that's not true. But without God, we can't say it is. Without God, all we have is pitiless indifference. We have a world that does not care about you. It does not care about anybody. None of of this actually matters. We cannot fight for any form of justice. Did you know something else? Not only does Richard Dawkins agree, but God agrees. He says the world is pitilessly indifferent to you. This is right from Romans chapter 8. It says, The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You understand what what Paul is saying, what God is saying? He's saying when human beings corrupted the world, God purposely made the world a place of pitiless indifference. Where some people are born into families where they thrive, some people are born into families where they suffer, some people are born into systems of oppression, some people are born into systems of privilege. So that you would realize that this world does not have what you're looking for. So that you would realize that this world is lost without God. So you look at these things and say, there's no way to solve this unless someone comes in and fixes it for us. And of course, you know, Christian, that's exactly what happened, and we'll get there. But for now, let's also look at love. Without God, love is meaningless. Without God, under the sun, what is love? It is the chemical reactions in your body that are trying to help you survive, Right? They are the impulses that you have that try to gain companionship with other people, maybe for protection, or for good feelings, or for resources that they have, or for procreation. That's all your love is. It's just your body trying to survive. But you don't feel that, do you? You feel that love is profound, that love is some of the most meaningful stuff you ever experience. Without God, love is nothing more than your gametes, your chemistry, trying to survive. Now let me be clear, you might think as I say that, that what I'm saying is people who are not Christian, who do not believe in God, cannot truly love. I want to be careful, because in a sense they can. Similar to the way we talked about altruism last week, and we said that people can be altruistic and do good for the world, they just have no reason why. In the same way, human beings who do not know God can love, they can be self-sacrificial, they just have no reason why. Love without God is meaningless. It is purposeless. It's not the profound experience that you felt the first time you held his hand, or when you said your vows, or when you held your first child, or as you held your father's hand as he was dying. None of those things are meaningful under the sun. And so where are we left? We're left in a world without meaning, if there is no God. But there is. There is a God. There is a God who is above the sun, so to speak. And because that God exists above the sun, your life is not meaningless. In fact, it is very meaningful. And your love, and your justice, and your work, and your pleasure, and your wisdom, they are all meaningful. And the way to understand that is to understand these two terms, essence and existence. Just to define these, existence, I think, is easy. It's the fact that you are. Essence is who you are. Who are you? That's your essence. In a world without God, your existence precedes your essence. In a world without God, you are just the collocation of atoms that happened to form in your mother's womb. You were born into this world, and you existed. Nothing was really inherently true about you until you started to do things. You started to make choices, you started to make friends, you worked at certain jobs, you lived in certain places. All those things created who you are. In fact, many of us answer this question, who are you this way? We talk about where we're from, what we do for work, what our family is like. Existence precedes essence in a non-God-honoring worldview. Here's the problem with that. If that's true, then how's your essence? I mean, who you are is not something to write home about if all your essence is is what you've done since the moment you were born. You may have done a number of good things and that's well enough, but what about all the bad things? What about all the wasted hours? What about all the people that you hurt? What about the people you've disappointed? What about the times when you've cheated others out of their time or money or love? What about those times when you haven't lived up to even your own standards for yourself? What's your essence? Pretty depressing, if all you have is existence and then essence. And so it's no wonder to me that our society is increasing in the amount of suicides and euthanasia cases um, over the last couple years. People are realizing they live in a world without God, at least they think they do, and they're realizing that their essence is not one worth keeping. They look at other people and they say, I'm not worth much. I better die so that people who are worth more than me can live. This is a world without God. But it's not the world we live in, brothers and sisters. In a world with God, your essence precedes your existence. Who you are precedes you actually existing. A way to think about this is like an artist. When an artist goes to the canvas to paint his masterpiece, is that the moment that that painting exists? In a certain sense, yes. It is the moment when the paint hits the canvas where that painting starts to exist. But in another sense, it existed far before that moment. It existed in the mind of the artist. As for weeks or months or years, he dreamt about this painting, thinking about the colors and the the lines and what it would communicate to people. It existed, in a sense. It had an essence before it existed. And the same thing is true about you and God. In God's mind, you existed before you existed. Your essence was there before you were. Think about this. In eternity past, God dreamt about you. Before you were born, before you were a twinkle in your parents' eye, before your great-great-great-great-grandparents even existed, God dreamt about you, thought about you, crafted the idea of you so that he could bring you into the world. And he did it purposefully and lovingly. And get this, he did it because he likes you. Like he created you thinking, this is the type of person I want to spend eternity with. And then he made you. He fashioned every little last thing about you in his own mind before he brought you into being. And if you think I'm just making this up, check out what Psalm 139 says. Were I to cut them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. Amazing words, right? But did you notice what he says specifically in verse 16? Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God saw something that was unformed. Your essence existed in God's mind before your flesh existed on this earth. All the days that God had planned for you were planned before one of them came to be. Which means your essence is not the things that you do. Your essence is what God created you to be. You are not the sum total of the accomplishments or failures of your life. You are the product of a loving God who dreamt you and made you. Which means you have inherent value because you are, you exist. So much of what we've been talking about in this series are external things in which we find our meaning. We find it in the feelings that we can have, the work that we can accomplish, the things that we can know. But God says you're not valuable because of those things. You're valuable because you are. You exist. And doesn't it make sense? When God comes to us, what is the first thing he calls himself? I am. I exist. That's why I am your God. That's why I am valuable. And you, created in his image, are valuable because you are. Not because you have this, that, or the other thing on your resume. Not because you're married or single, because you have kids or don't. Because you're rich or poor or live in this place or that place. You are valuable, you are meaningful because you are. And because you were recreated to be. Look at Ephesians 2.10. It says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. So not only did God form the person you are, but he also recreated you because he knew that sight of heaven you would be born into the corruption of sin. And so he took his own life into his hands and put it on a cross for you so that he could recreate you in Christ Jesus. That word handiwork is handcrafted. Think hammers. Purposefully made in every last, and, and every last characteristic so that you could do good works, which God, by the way, prepared in advance for you to do. This means that every last thing about you, from the things you love to the things you hate, is on purpose. Because God wants you to fit in a perfect spot in his world. Everything from your forgetfulness to the abuse that you suffered, everything from the relationships that you have to the relationships you wish you had, from your introversion to your extroversion, to your disagreeability, to your agreeability, all these things, they were all put into your life by God on purpose. Now some of you might say, well, I kind of don't like that though. (laughs) I mean, I I realize that God did all these things for me and and that's great, but I kind of don't like the way that I am. And that's probably good. You're not supposed to live here forever the way that you are. But let me press on you a thought from George MacDonald, he's a, a theologian. He said, if you had the choice between being amazing at everything you ever wanted to be amazing at, but no one knew it, and on the other hand, being relatively ordinary, but you were deeply loved, which would you choose? And some of us, we want to be amazing, but we try to find that amazing reputation in the minds and eyes of people who will only exist for 70 or 80 years if they have the strength, and then they will all die when we could just lean into the fact that God has made us ordinary and has loved us deeply. See, with God, everything is meaningful. Everything that you are, everything that you do is meaningful. So what does Solomon say? At the end of this book, after all the things he has said, he says, remember your creator. Remember your story. Remember that you are not just here for a few years to accomplish as much as you think you can or you feel like you should but that God has made you and God has put you into his world to be a blessing to the people around you. And he has uniquely gifted you, created you, crafted you to be those things. And then he also says, Now here is the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. He basically says, If you look at the world under the sun, you will find that it is meaningless. Good things happen to some, bad things happen to others. So why worry about trying to control the outcomes? You can't. You can't control it. But God can. And if you don't lean into this, you might die. I mean, you might die, of course, eternally, because you've forgotten God, you've forgotten the narrative, but really, as you live your life, even today, it matters. Uh, Dr. Michael Chandler, he's a professor at the University of British Columbia, went and researched First, Na- First Nations tribes in BC. and He would canvass these communities and he would ask them questions about their life, and what he started to notice was that certain communities had seriously high rates of suicide among youth. It wasn't every community, it was just certain ones, and so he and his fellow researchers tried to figure out what caused some of these communities to have these high rates of suicide and others did not. Well, they found out was that those young people in those communities where suicide was prevalent had no story. They didn't know where they came from. They didn't have anything to live for. They didn't know where they were going. While other tribes maybe had a history of their people, they maybe even lived on their ancestral land, other tribes had been displaced. They would intermarried who knew what their story was. Because those young people didn't have a story, they didn't have anything to live for. I'm not saying this because I think that those tribes should be Christian, although I wish they were. I'm saying it for you. To the extent to which you lean into a story that is actually meaningful, you will thrive, both this side of heaven and forever. To the extent to which you throw this away, you will live your meaningless existence until you die. I want something better for you, just as God does. So, brothers and sisters, let's lean into God's story. And let's remember that when we do, it won't always work out well, but it will be meaningful. I think of this amazing chapter in Hebrews, uh, the chapter 11 that is often called the Hall of Faith. Do you know this chapter? It starts, by faith, this man, by faith, this man. And they do these amazing things. Maybe you remember some of the stories. By faith, Noah, right, who built the ark. By faith, Abraham, who was called out of his previous life. By faith, Jacob, who had to wrestle with his with God in order to stand up to his brother by faith Joseph who was set, sold into slavery only to ascend to the highest throne in the land and Moses who was almost killed as a child but lived and also took the position of Pharaoh's right-hand man people who had really good things happen to them because they wanted to live a meaningful life because they did what God said and yet in that exact same chapter later we find out there were others who were tortured Refusing to be released that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, they were sawed in two, they were killed by the sword. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. The point of this is to say, you won't be able to control your life. So you can leave it, so why not live it in a meaningful way? Why not live it in light of God? And say that this 70 or 80 years that I live here, it's not all that meaningful without him. Because what's coming, the bigger story, is what matters. You can't control your life, but God does. So lean into his story, brothers and sisters, and you will find a meaningful life. Let's pray. God, please help your story to permeate our lives. To push out all the other things that we think are meaningful. So help us to know you, to know the true story of you, to trust in you, and find our purpose in you. Help us to see the beauty of being in your mind before we were even made, to know that our value is not in what we do, but in who you have made us and remade us to be. And we ask also that you would show that kind of love through us to other people, that we would show them that they too are meaningful in your world. Amen.